Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Ben Cohn about his book, The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Ben covers the NBA as well as other sports for the Wall Street Journal. This is Ben's first book. Uh, I have to say I'm very excited to have Ben on the air. I am uh, a Twitter follower of Ben's, but also uh, I've I've read many of Ben's articles, and one of the great things uh, about Ben's writing is he finds uh, unique angles on basketball specifically. I'm a basketball junkie, so that's a lot of what I follow. But sports in general, he finds unique ways to cover it and and shine a light on the games. And and I think he really did that in this book, as we will talk about. Um, it's a book about basketball, but it's a book about so much more. And... Uh, I just want to say, Ben Cohn, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for such a generous introduction. I'm so thrilled to to chat with you. Well, it's great to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I am a uh, reporter for The Wall Street Journal and have been for about 10 years now. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, um, like many um basketball-obsessed kids in New Jersey. I went to Duke University for college um, and interned at the Wall Street Journal and have been there ever since. Great. Um, was it, do you, did you ever have a kind of mentor at the, at the journal? Somebody who showed you the ropes? I did. Uh, really, two or three. I mean, the, the guy who hired me is this brilliant guy named Sam Walker, who was the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section, which has only really existed for about 10 years now. Um, and he sort of showed me what a story is, how to think differently and creatively um, and look for um, different angles and ways into stories. I mean, everything I know about um, writing a story for the Wall Street Journal really comes from Sam. Um, our current editor is a guy named Bruce Orwall, um, who has really mentored me um, in, in a different way. Um, Bruce is really um, a news junkie and 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 knows um, news stories and how to look around corners on news stories better than I think just about anybody in the newsroom. And um, he has not only like let me uh, pursue some of my wildest ideas, but sort of actively encourage them. And that's really all you can ask for in an editor and in a boss. And then in terms of writing, um, the journal sports columnist is a guy named Jason Gay, who I think is just about the funniest writer on the planet. And um, in terms of sensibility, um, in terms of how to execute a story, and um, you know, just in, in terms of um, how to live life, I mean, Jason is really someone who I look up to. So those three guys in particular, Sam, Jason, and Bruce, have, have really been wonderful and um, sort of transformational mentors for me. Right. Is, is Sam Walker, did he write the book, The Captain Class? He did indeed. Yes. This is why he'll be thrilled to get a plug. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, I, I read The Captain Class. It it came out either two, who knows, two years ago, last, maybe two years ago, last year. Um, Time has ceased to exist. I'm sorry. 
Time has ceased to exist. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Um, but anyway, the Captain Class is a great is a great book. It's about it's about dynasties, sports dynasties, and and the components of sports dynasties and you know why teams become dynasties and you know kind of the the DNA of of those dynasties. So um, seems like that seems like a great mentor. He's he's clearly very good at what he does. Um, but anyway, moving on to your book, of course, it's called The Hot Hand, The Mystery and Science of Streaks. Um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with the idea of the hot hand. So I wonder if we could start off by you explaining the phenomenon and uh, and talk a little bit about the controversy, if you will, surrounding it. Sure. So there is really no singular definition of the hot hand but I like to think of it as when success leads to more success. That's kind of the simplest way to put it. In basketball, it's when you make one shot and then another shot and then another shot and you feel more likely to make your next shot. You feel like you are in the zone. You are on fire, right? You can't miss. But it's really not just basketball. This is about human behavior and how we make decisions. And I think that we are all familiar with this phenomenon of being in the zone. We have all felt the hot hand and seen the hot hand for ourselves. And um, that is really where this story starts. It starts with um, the publication of this classic paper in 1985 that is now really in the canon of behavioral economics and cognitive psychology. And what made it so classic was its highly counterintuitive conclusion, which is that there is no such thing as the hot hand. This thing that we all think to be true and would would swear to be true is simply a figment of our imagination. It's a misreading of randomness and seeing patterns where they don't exist and then inventing causes to explain them. Now, something kind of incredible happened when this paper was published. It was so unbelievable that many people just refused to believe it because we have these powerful memories of the hot hand in our own minds, right? I mean, I do. I'm sure you do as well. And um, the, the, the authors of this paper had to fight really hard over the course of a few decades to get people to change their minds about the hot hand and see it as a cognitive bias, right? And that's kind of where the story starts because um, it turns out uh, in recent years, our minds have changed again, and it our intuition actually may have been right on this one. And so the narrative journey of the book um, takes you on something that we all think to be true, only to be told that it's not, only to realize that maybe it actually was. And that was something I really wanted to play around with and sort of find stories um, that would help illuminate the ideas in this book. Yeah, I, I, I loved, um, as you said, that was kind of the major twist and turn in the book of, you know, trust your intuition and uh, don't trust your intuition and then trust your intuition. And, um, it was, it was interesting, interesting to me because I know, you know, there's, there are so many examples from social psychology, um, in which we've learned that our brains mislead us. Um, you know, you talked about memory of the, of the hot hand, um, memory itself, I think is an excellent example that countless studies have shown that have demonstrated the fallibility of memory, memory, no matter how, positive we are about certain memories, um, they're not nearly as accurate as we believe them to be. Um, why do you think it's so difficult for people to override their intuition in the face of scientific evidence to the contrary? Well, it's because it's something that comes very naturally to us, right? I mean, human beings have a really hard time dealing with randomness, which I think um, is one of the lessons that comes out of all of this 
research about the hot hand, these hundreds of scholarly papers that have been published over the course of about four decades now. I mean, judgment under uncertainty is really tricky for human beings, and especially when you throw randomness into the equation. And fundamentally, there is an aspect of randomness that we have to grapple with when we think about the hot hand. Sure. Um, you discussed in the introduction your own experience with the hot hand, your um, your your uh, career career defining day in middle school basketball. Um, uh, excuse me, it was junior varsity basketball. I'm sorry, junior varsity. <laughs> um, can you share with our listeners why you decided to write a book about this topic? About but the the one good game of my basketball career, you want well, me to talk more yeah, about that? I, mean, I would love to. Yeah, sure about that, and and just your, you know your your interest in in the hot hand in general in all fields. Sure. So, um, what you are talking about is um, the best basketball game I ever played in my life. I was um, very charitably a terrible basketball player, but um, in one quarter of one game, I scored more points than I had in my entire career combined. I had the hot hand. And I remember a lot about that day, um, especially considering it was about 20 years ago and it was a junior varsity basketball game with pretty much nobody in the stands. Um, So that game stuck with me. And um, what I found since writing this book is that um, even though I have this very clear recollection of this very strange event in my life, that's really not all that strange. I think a lot of us um, can relate to that um, that memory I have because um, there is something powerful. There's a real force to the hot hand that sticks with us because we feel like we are transcending probability. We have elevated to this superhuman version of ourselves. So my hot hand, I'm not Steph Curry, but I am like the greatest possible version of Ben Cohen on a basketball court. And that's something that, um, you know, I continue to think about as, as pathetic as that might be. I would not have written a whole book about that, though, um, if if there weren't such a fierce um, scholarly debate about this and um, and if it didn't apply so broadly beyond basketball, which is the reason why uh, really smart people have thought about this idea for a really long time. And so the one thing I've learned in about 10 years at The Wall Street Journal, not the one thing, but but the major thing is that every good story needs to have tension, tension fundamentally is what makes stories worth telling, right? And I really just could not believe how much tension there was in this fight over a single idea. And so when you have that tension, and when you have this saga that stretches back decades, in which the characters are Nobel Prize winners and NBA superstars, and I got a chance to talk about my one magical junior varsity basketball game, I found all (laughs) of this just really irresistible. Yeah, I found it fascinating. Because as you noted, you have two uh, groups of people who are absolutely brilliant in their fields, right? And that you have um, these these researchers, um, economists, statisticians, um, and then on the other end, you have NBA basketball players, NBA basketball players who are geniuses. Steph Curry, LeBron James, they are geniuses in their respective fields, and they are so passionate in their uh, disagreement that. It, that it, it truly is fascinating. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, as I said to you before we came on the air, that this is to me this is very much a sports book, but it but it's also a book about psychology, economics, statistics, and it analyzes the hot hand through the worlds of art. You know, Vincent Van Gogh and the Princess Bride uh, and um, asylum seekers and investing. Um, 
but you weave those different things together so well. Um, I'm curious how you decide to dive into the specific into the specific fields that you did. Uh, it's an excellent question. I, I knew when I started to write the book that that was the point of writing the book. This was not going to just be about basketball, and it was really not going to be just about uh, the big um, advances and breakthroughs in the scholarly literature about the hot hand. I wanted to write the book because I wanted to apply the idea far beyond academia, and I wanted to find real people with real stories that could you know, s- sort of shed some light on these ideas um, and and sort of explain, um, you know, and personify uh, the academic and scholarly papers in the book. And, um, you know, the reason why these people, you know, spent all of this time um, and their precious resources and really staked their reputations on this work about the hot hand is because they weren't studying basketball. They were studying how we make judgments and decisions. And that's something that um, I think that we can all relate to. So the challenge of the book, there were, there were really three challenges. There was um, actually writing the book. There was reporting the book for sure. But, um, but really probably the thing that I spent the most time on was finding the stories uh, to write about in the book. Because when you can write about everything, finding something to write about turns out to be much trickier than I thought. I, the bar was really high and I trashed a whole bunch of stories and ideas and went down a bunch of rabbit holes that just never led anywhere because I wanted there to be something really gripping, compelling about each of the stories in this book. And, you know, the ones that I did um, write about and the people who I got to meet were people who I just really fell in love with. And I I just really, um, I love telling their stories. They were, they were so interesting to me um, for a, for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I'm happy to talk about any of them or some of them. Um, But um, there's a reason why, you know, I, I, I didn't want you to get bored on any page of this book. And, and hopefully, um, you know, I came close to succeeding in that mission. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you, you know, I, I think you did a great job of pulling it back, um, pulling it back to basketball very often. Again, I'm a basketball guy. So, you know, even like, as I, I mentioned to you in an email, you know, one of the subjects of the book is David Booth at Dimensional Fund Advisors and, and his his investment techniques. And I've I've met David. My wife works for David. So that was very cool for me. Um, but I loved how, you know, at the end you weave in how David Booth uh, bought at auction the original Dr. James Naismith's original rules of basketball. And, and it's a it's a it's a it's a very lovely example because there were I, I knew I wanted to write about finance and money and um and and I pretty quickly realized I wanted to write about passive investors and index funds um and there are a whole bunch of index fund managers out there and guys who sort of saw the revolution in passive investing coming and were responsible for it but only one of them spent some of his fortune to buy the Naismith Rules of Basketball, and only one of them grew up on Naismith Drive in Lawrence, right. Kansas. And so um, I, I felt that the, the major studies about the hot hand being about basketball over the last 35 years gave me this built-in excuse to write about basketball. It, was, it really would have been intellectually dishonest to not write about basketball. So Amos Tversky and Tom Gilovich and Bob Valone, the authors of this first paper about the hot hand, they kind of gave me permission to keep writing about basketball and 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 write the first chapter of this book about Steph Curry and about NBA Jam and tell my own stories about basketball because it's impossible really to tell the story and the saga of the hot hand without writing about basketball. 
Sure. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned that wonderful study in, in a famous study, iconic study in, in 1985. I wonder why, maybe you could talk a little bit about why, um, you know, you, you noted that ultimately at its core, this is a book about judgment and decision making, right? And why did the basketball setting um, specifically with regards to the hot hand, being in the zone, whatever you want to call it, why did that lend itself to to studies the way that it did? I think there are really two explanations. The first is that the hot hand is a natural phenomenon in basketball. I think that it's one of the places where most people have felt it. So some people feel it in golf or in baseball or racquetball or squash or tennis, but you know, you, you can hear Marv Albert, you know, talking about being in the zone. Right. And I think that, um, you know, you, you don't have to be a very good basketball player to understand what it feels like to be hot. Um, but the second answer, and really this is the one why that first paper, um, exists is that, um, basketball had the data. So in 1985, there was an official statistician for the Philadelphia 76ers named Harvey Pollack, who was a revolutionary in many ways. And, and many years ahead of his time, he was kind of a proto analytics guy. He was like, um, he was paying attention to numbers and looking for value in data decades before the rest of the sports world caught up. And in the 1980s, um, he was the only person in the NBA who bothered to keep track of shots and the order in which they were taken. So play by play shooting chronology. Now, you know, these days, we know everything there is to know about a given shot in any given game. The level of detail is so granular. And yet it really wasn't all that long ago when only one guy for one team was telling you, uh, you know, whether who, who was taking shots in what order. And so when um, Gilovich, Valone and Tversky went looking for data to study the hot hand, there was really only one place um, that that search took them and it was to Philadelphia. And so the reason why, um, this has been studied um, at first through basketball. It has since expanded to basically every sport. I think I say in the book that if there's any activity that can, you know, reasonably considered uh, be considered a sport, the chances are that um, you know people have been looking for the hot hand in that sport. But the reason um, you know basketball uh, is the sport that the hot hand um, has this long history and is because one guy bothered keeping track of data. And I think that um, that search for better data and allowing better data to change our minds is really one of the great lessons um, of this saga over this idea, I think. Were there, I wonder if there were there any fields that you were curious about regarding the effect of the hot hand or whether the hot hand existed, uh, but, but were unable, unable to uh, study them adequately or, or include them in the book for any particular reason? Not really. The thing that I really wish I knew more about the hot hand, and I think probably we will know more in the, in the future, is what exactly is happening neurologically when someone gets hot and when yeah. you're on the basketball court and you catch fire. Like It would be really thrilling um, to sort of strap electrodes into our brains and see which parts of the brain and which neurons are firing um, when we make a few shots in a row and why, um, you know, having the hot hand makes us so happy. Like why is being in the zone such a pleasurable experience? There are clearly questions of, of brain chemistry and science here. And I don't think we really know exactly what is happening. So, you know, I, I, I the great mystery of the hot hand, I think, is um, why it happens and whether we're able to predict when it's going to happen to take advantage. I don't think we're going to know that for quite some time. But I think neurologically, we could probably make some breakthroughs in the next few years. 
Right. Um, by the way, for our listeners, I'm intentionally not uh, disclosing Ben's conclusion to the extent that it was any about whether the hot hang exists in basketball. And I'm not asking him on, on this podcast because for a couple of reasons, one, I want you to read the book, find out for yourself. And two, um, as, as, as Ben has noted, ultimately this is, this is not, uh, not, not a, not a crucial question uh, or not the, the, the most important question he was addressing. It's really a, it's a book about judgment making decision making. Um, and the process that goes into that, um, the factors that affect that. And so in a way, it's kind of irrelevant whether it exists specifically in basketball or not. Um, but as I said, that that's a teaser. I want you to read the book and find out for yourselves. Um, ben, every basketball player I've ever heard talk about the hot hand. Um, as you said, as you noted, there was great resistance to um, the initial study in 1985. Uh, you talked about Red Auerbach. Um, I could just imagine a surly red hour back commenting about that. Um, you know, he dismissed it as nonsense. Um, you talk in the book about Steph Curry talking about it. Um, I've heard LeBron, LeBron had a quote not that long ago saying something to the effect that anybody who doesn't believe in the hot hand has never played basketball. Um, I wonder if you've come across any players or coaches who believe that the hot hand does not exist in basketball. You know, I talked to JJ Redick about this a few years ago, and and JJ obviously was an incredible shooter at Duke and remains one um, to this day in the NBA. And JJ actually um, ran an independent study with a statistics professor when he was at Duke, um, and he looked into the hot hand, and um, I believe he sort of came to the same conclusion as the eighty-five paper. Um, and he knows that, like he, you know, JJ is really smart and thoughtful and bright and knows all about regression to the mean. Um, but I think he's kind of an outlier in that respect. In fact, when I asked Steph Curry, like, have you ever met anyone who doesn't believe in the hot hand? He said, no, of course not. Like everybody um, who he is around believes in the hot hand. And I think that's, um, that's very true of NBA players, because if you think about, um, you know, the population of NBA players, they are guys, um, 450 men who have been better at basketball than pretty much everybody they're around for most of their lives. And they must have had experiences with the hot hand to get to the point that they are playing in the NBA, right? They wouldn't be in the NBA if they didn't have, um, you know, those brushes with the hot hands. And I think they really linger with you in the same way that that um, that that one JV game stuck with me for a very long time. So um, I think it's a really powerful force to shake. I mean, that's sort of, um, you know, one of the troubling things about the human mind is that um, there are peculiarities. And, um, you know, even though we know um, that we should, you know, be aware of our biases. It's still really hard um, to enforce that. Like we are irrational beings, and um, we make cognitive mistakes all the time. And when you get thrown into a basketball game and you feel like you should know better, it's kind of hard to um, it, it's hard to suppress that voice in your head saying, "Well, there's this paper from 35 years ago saying <laughs> there is no such thing as the hot hand." You're thinking, "I don't care about that. I'm taking the shot." Right. Right. Sure. And, and that's something else I want to ask you that's a perfect segue into that is, is, um, you know, from based on your research, how do you feel uh, the belief, the common belief in the hot hand among players and coaches alike uh, affects play on the floor? 
Well, I think th- this collective belief in the hot hand kind of warps the behavior of everybody on the court. And that was actually one of the things that masked and disguised the hot hand for a really long time, which is that if if you know that you are hot, if Steph Curry has made two or three shots in a row, the chances are he is going to take a shot that he is less likely to make, right? He's going to take a, a crazier shot, a riskier shot, a longer shot, a shot with two guys in his face. And, you know, when he can't even see the basket and he's falling away um, into his own bench, I mean, he has license to take those shots when he is hot. And so um, I, I do think, you know, defenses adjust and coaches call timeouts, but um, there are also ways for offenses to adjust to the hot hand and kind of take advantage, even if the guy who is hot doesn't shoot and can't exploit it for himself. We see this in the game that, um, you know, that, that Steph Curry caught fire in Madison Square Garden against the New York Knicks. Even when he is hot, there are times when he's double teamed and he just passes to teammates for open layups. So those are two pointers, not three pointers, but they're wide open and they're better shots than contested three pointers from even Steph Curry. And so um, sort of the effect of the hot hand is that it becomes easier uh, for everybody around you to score if everybody believes that the hot hand is real and then behaves according to that belief. Right. Let me just say, I love that you have, uh, I guess it's a subtitle called Boom Shakalaka. <laughs> um, any, I think any uh, basketball fan my age, relatively my age, knows exactly what that means. I went through a, a big NBA jam phase as a kid. Um, and naturally, I thoroughly enjoyed that part of the book. Do you, think well, the, the, do you think the NBA Jam craze helped to contribute to belief in the hot hand? Yeah, un- undoubtedly. Um, you know, I love the story of NBA Jam because I really love getting to know the guy who created NBA Jam. His name was Mark Trammell. And when Mark Trammell was a kid, he loved three things. He loved basketball and he loved video games and arcade games. But what he really loved was fire. He was a bit of a childhood pyromaniac. And when he grew up, um, he combined these three childhood loves into the biggest hit of his career. And so it wasn't just you who played NBA Jam. It wasn't just me who played NBA Jam. It was basically everybody who played NBA Jam. It was one of the most successful arcade games ever made and the most lucrative arcade game ever made. So it made um, about a billion dollars in quarters in less than a year. That's a billion with a B. It was just this smash hit. And the question that um, Mark Trammell and everybody around him at Midway Games had to ask was why, right? Like there was really nothing obvious about that game's success. In fact, when you think about it, it was a deeply bizarre game. It was it was really weird, and it was it was based off of um, you know a, a sci-fi game based in post-apocalyptic society. It was this was not what you would expect to be this best-selling basketball game, and yet it was. And my theory is because um, you know it was really fun to play. You got to you know somersault over the basket for dunks and can throw up three pointers from a mile away. But I think we all really wanted to hear those three words: he's heating up, and then he's on fire. And I do think that Mark Trammell um, almost single-handedly brainwashed a generation of impressionable young minds into believing the concept of the hot hand. That if you make two or three shots in a row you are going to make the next shot no matter what. And um, there are lots of people around our age who would never feel differently. And I do think that NBA Jam is very much responsible for that. Did you get any sense as to whether Mark understands the the influence of NBA Jam in that sense? He knows that it's an enormously influential 
game. He was not aware of any of this academic history or this like great psychological debate about the hot hand until we started talking about him. But he understood and and came to understand through NBA Jam the power of the hot hand. In fact, for every game that he has developed since then, um, if you do two or three things in a row, there is a reward for your fourth thing. He is always chasing um, that third thing. He's encouraging you um, to seek out these patterns and to try to take advantage of them because he knows that this is the way our mind works. We have evolved as human beings to look for patterns and he kind of found a way to weaponize that against us. So, you know, some people might find that to be a bit sinister. I think he would say, you know, we're, we're already doing this and this is such a memorable, effective NBA jam that it turns out to be worthwhile in the end. Sure. And as you noted, uh, there seems to be a, a, an enjoyment attached to being in the zone or having the hot end or even even, you know, vicariously through a video game. Yeah, it's surprising and it's thrilling. And that's what Mark Turmel is always thinking about when he designs games. He wants there to be thrills and surprises and delights around every corner. And certainly if you make two or three shots in a row and the ball explodes into a fireball, that is surprising and it's delightful and it's definitely a bit thrilling. Right. You. you you, you mentioned um, kind of our evolutionary tendency to seek patterns or, or see patterns in information. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, possibly theories on, on why, um, where that came from, what the evolutionary benefit is of seeing patterns when, when they may not even exist. Foraging, it turns out, um, you know, hunter gatherers and and primitive um, human beings, um, the anthropologists who have studied them found that there were real benefits when people were foraging in in searching for patterns because um, you know nature and um, the natural environment there are clumps right that's how it works that you know food um, you know there are patterns when you search for food and you know the chances are. That if you see three things, there's going to be a fourth thing right around there. So our minds are programmed to search for these patterns. And, you know, we have evolved over the years to crave order in chaos. And so, you know, some of the um, some of the researchers who have looked into the hot hand, not quite the cognitive psychologists, but the people who have taken this idea and brought it into their own fields. Um, they've actually studied, um, you know, Reese's monkeys, and they've put these monkeys in these ergonomic chairs in their laboratories, and they've designed games in which they wanted to find out whether monkeys also believe in the hot hand. And it turns out they do. Um, when there are rewards um, for, for believing in the hot hand and following hot hand behavior, the monkeys, um, you know, they, they like to sip their cherry juice and, and, and they're very good at that. But when, um, when the games actively punish a belief in the hot hand, they don't do so well at those games. So um, what this research, and it's really pretty recent, shows is that um, they have this same freaky bias that human beings do. Like there's a reason why this exists and it's been evolutionarily ingrained into us over a very long amount of time. Not, not you know, since NBA Jam came out and, and not since right. his first paper came out, but for many, many years before that. That's fascinating. Um, so to the extent that there is such a thing as the hot hand in sports or other fields, is there anything that we can do to A, get in the zone and B, maintain that hot hand? 
It's a great question. And in fact, it's such a good question that I decided to ask Steph Curry this because what I wanted to know is that like, does, does the greatest shooter in the history of the planet know when he's about to get hot? And what Steph Curry says is no, he doesn't know when it's going to happen or where or how uh, or why it's going to happen. But once it does happen, you have to embrace it. And so I think that's really the best way to think about it. I think we always have to be searching for the hot hand in our own daily lives and trying to take advantage of it um, when we see it and when it presents itself. Because um, it's really important to take advantage because it can sort of elevate your career and kind of change your life a little bit. Um, But it's also important to understand when and where the hot hand doesn't exist and which environments punish a believe in the hot hand, where believing in the hot hand can backfire and burn you a little bit. And so I do think basketball is one example um, of a sport, of an industry, of an environment where you might be able to get hot. And um, it's not such a bad idea. And it's really not crazy to take a heat check three if you've made a few in a row. You might not know when it's about to happen. You know, Steph Curry, the hottest he ever was, came in a game um, in which uh, he played all 48 minutes. He didn't come out. Um, He had started a fight the night before. He woke up $35,000 poorer. Um, His bus got pulled over by cops on the way to Madison Square Garden. His warm-up routine was rushed. If you were to ask him before this game, are you going to have a good game? He probably would have said no. And then he went out and had the greatest shooting night of his life. So you really don't know when it's going to happen. Um, but And sometimes it happens when you least expect it, right? When your bus gets pulled over on the way to Madison Square Garden. But even then, you have to be on the lookout and take advantage because you know what we know about Steph Curry is that his life kind of changed that night and the fate of the Golden State Warriors changed. The future of the entire NBA and in many respects, all of basketball changed that night. No one would have ever predicted it, but it's sort of exactly what happened. Yeah, and I, I'm a Knicks fan and I was watching that game and it was uh, it was magnificent. It well, was I, I have to apologize for being a Knicks fan first and foremost. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I'm still I'm stuck in the 90s, you know. <laughs> I just I try and pretend the last 20 years didn't happen. Um, th- I mean, this is kind of out outside the scope of the book, but uh, I think certainly relevant to the topic. Um, have you have you gone down the rabbit hole at all as to whether there is such thing as a cold hand, whether whether people can you know be in a rut and, you know, an extended rut or just somewhat maybe incapable of getting into the zone or something to that effect? It's a really interesting question. Um, I did not really explore it all that much because I was sort of taken um, with what I think of as the corollary of the hot hand, if not the opposite of the hot hand. And that's the gambler's fallacy. Not quite the cold hand, um, but it's 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 sort of similar Um And I'll explain it through basketball because, you know, that's how I explain everything about the hot hand. When you walk into an NBA arena and you see Steph Curry make a few shots in a row, everybody in the arena expects him to make the next shot. That's the hot hand. But when you walk into a casino and you go to the roulette wheel and you see um, red three times in a row, what research actually shows is that most people will bet on black the next time. And that's the gambler's fallacy. It's the same thing. You have three things in a row happening and yet we come to the exact opposite conclusion. We, you know, we literally um, place our bets 
um, on the streak to end instead of the streak to continue. And, and that really was more interesting to me than the idea of the cold hand. It's why do we um, and why and how um, do our brains um, come to the exact opposite conclusion with similar information? And I think the answer, the crucial distinction is the one of control. We feel that when we get hot, um, when we have agency of our own lives and of our own situations, we can get hot and um, and we have some control and, um, you know, that that's sort of what the basketball example is. But when we recognize that we're at the mercy of chance and that it's simply a spin of the roulette wheel, um, we kind of feel the opposite. We we know that probably there is not a hot hand and, um, and we place our money accordingly. And that really um, was pretty fascinating to me because, um, you know, what there have been, there's been plenty of research about the hot hand. There's been, um, you know, almost as much research about the gambler's fallacy. Um, and it really just shows that this entire phenomenon is one of judgment and decision-making and there are consequences everywhere you look. Right. Yeah. That, that, that really is fascinating. Um, while I have you on, I have to ask you, um, Adrian Wojnarowski, um, reported today, of course, from ESPN, he reported today that the NBA is going to approve a, uh, a resumption to the season with 22 teams playing in Disney World um, beginning on July 1st. And uh, I, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on resuming the season and, and that particular format. Well, I think it'll be very interesting, right? I mean, it's it's important to point out that it's still about two months away um, and lots can change before then. Um, I think the real challenge is not going to be as much starting the season as it's going to be finishing the season. But um, I do think it will be a real crowning achievement for the NBA if they're able to pull this off. It's been a season unlike any other in many respects. And, um, you know, if they can sort of crown a champion at the end of this, it will be one hell of a thing. I, I, I think it's really risky too. Um, you know, there, there's, um, there's the chance that this ends in disaster. Um, but you know, the, the, the situation has evolved so much over the course of three months and, um, on our understanding of risk, um, and, and, um, how to weigh that against the rewards of returning, um, that has also shifted a lot. And so, um, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, it's, there are a lot of people who have worked really hard to get to this point, and now the hard work is really going to start because pulling off this plan is going to be almost as impossible um, as hatching it would have been three months ago when the league shut down. Right. Yeah. It, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, well, I've taken enough of your time, Ben. I, I'd like to ask you one final question that I asked all of my guests. Um once again, the name of Ben's book is The Hot Hand, The History and Science of Streaks. Um, I, I hope you can tell from our discussion that it, it's really a fascinating book on many levels. Um, but my question, my last question for you, Ben, is what is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh, that's a good question. What What is the answer you hear most often? I, To be honest with you, I don't think I've heard the same answer twice. Uh, you know, to me, I mean, to me, it's really, it's, it's really Moneyball. I mean, from, um, from the writing of it to the story, to the impact that it made, I think it's, um, it's as close to a perfect sports book as you can write. Um, have you heard that one before? I probably think that, I think that's the, I think that is now the first answer that I've heard twice. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a very deserving answer of being heard twice, I think. Yeah, actually, I absolutely, I agree with everything you said. I certainly, 
if for nothing else, just the impact that it's had on, on, on sports and on, uh, people covering sports, you know, the number of people who, or, or who, who now work in sports in, in jobs that were just not, that didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah, it's also it's just such a captivating story, and the writing really jumps off the page. Um, I will say, uh, you know, it, it, I've I have a lot of colleagues and friends who have written books, so I'm not going to mention any of them. But but um, but one that I really loved um, recently was a book called Boomtown by Sam Anderson, and um, it's sort of a sports book in that um, it traces the history um, of one Oklahoma City Thunder season, but um, it it puts it against the backdrop of the history of Oklahoma City itself um, and tornadoes and earthquakes and bombings. Um, and it's, wow. it's, it's a book that, um, I could not put down and, you know, hearing, um, that a book about the history of Oklahoma city, um, you know, it might not sound fascinating, but it really is. And the thunder really play an integral role of it. So I think that book is as much about sports as the hot hand is about sports. And so, um, I'll go right. with Moneyball and Boomtown, um, just, just to give you something that maybe you haven't heard before. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I've heard very good things about Boomtown. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I have heard heard very nice things i'll have to check it out all right well ben cohen thank you again so much for your time it was it was great having you on i really as i noted a couple times i loved the book and i really enjoyed this conversation so thank you so much thank you for having me